Isaac Shade here, co-host of the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. Join Andy Patton and me every Monday as we break down all the buzzer-beating action, conference rivalry games, and need-to-know bubble matchups ahead of the NCAA tournament. Check out the Locked On College Basketball Podcast every Monday, available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Saturday's game against Pacific was among the toughest watches of the season, but Gonzaga did come away with a victory. We're going to discuss the surprisingly poor performance as well as some potential solutions for this team's offense on today's Locked on Zags podcast. You are Locked on Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on now? Welcome into Locked On Zags Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to bring you news and updates on all things Zag athletics. Today's episode of Locked On Zags is brought to you by FanDuel. Folks, make every moment more. Right now, new customers can get $150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. So visit FanDuel.com slash Locked On today to get started. Well, it is Mailbag Monday, folks. For those of you who would like to get involved in Mailbag Monday, you can join us on our Discord channel. It is free to join. There's a link in the show notes on audio and video platforms. Uh, you can join us there. We're talking throughout the games. You can ask your mailbag questions. You can also email me, andypatton 13 at gmail.com. Lots to get to today. It was a tough, tough game for Gonzaga on Saturday. Of course, they did survive and beat the Pacific Tigers, uh, but it was not a particularly fun game. Austin via Discord asks about it. He says, another difficult game to watch, but if you look at the stat sheet, it actually doesn't look too bad. Three-point percentage appears to be coming along, and there are no glaring negatives on the stat sheet. 12 turnovers isn't good, but not terrible. What was it about this game? Yeah, it was very much a vibes game. And there's a lot of Gonzaga fans out there who probably didn't watch this game. They had plans on a Saturday night. It was against Pacific, not a team that historically has needed a, a, you know, doesn't command the same attention as Gonzaga versus St. Mary's or even San Francisco or Santa Clara. And I think a lot of people may have seen the box score and thought, oh, it's a 12-point game. That's, that's, you know, not terrible, but not great. Might have seen the halftime score and been like, oh, wow, Gonzaga's losing to Pacific. That's not good. But may have otherwise not looked too closely at this game. You saw the box score. Gonzaga shot 35% plus from three. Uh, yeah, they didn't shoot well from the free throw line. Grammy had another nice game. And it kind of just looks like what we've been seeing. And in some ways it was. But watching this game for the full 40 minutes felt a lot worse. It was the struggles, I think, the reason that that it was about this game. Richard Fox talks about, talked about it before the game on the broadcast, too. Is it's kind of a trap game. You're coming off this big emotional win over San Francisco. It was tough. It was hard fought. You know you didn't execute at the end of the game. Uh, you still managed to pull off a victory. The next day, you go from being in Spokane to flying down to the Bay Area. You play Pacific two days later. It's a really tight turnaround. The WCC has not had these quick one-day turnarounds in the last couple of years because of BYU leaving the conference has kind of changed the schedule. And I'm not certainly putting that much of the blame on this. It shouldn't be like that's something you should be able to adjust to, but it's a lot of teams fall flat in games like this. St. Mary's look very bad against LMU coming off of their big win over Pacific. Like a lot of teams kind of fall flat in these situations. So I think there was a combination of the emotion from that game 
the uh, the quick turnaround for this Pacific game. Pacific was fired up after their really bad loss to St. Mary's. And uh, it's just kind of one of those things that happens. But I think the reason that there was extra frustration, and we'll talk about that more in this next question, was really just we're not seeing the growth. We're not seeing the development. Gonzaga's not going forward in the way that we want them to. And I think that that's what's really just kind of starting to to frustrate more fans is like we want we see we see progress and then we see steps backward we're not continuing to develop certain players will have good games and then they will have bad games and part of that is just they have a very young roster they still haven't played together that much so the development is just not happening in the linear way that we're typically used to and i think that's what's causing a lot of the frustration about these kind of games jeff via gmail asks more about the game he says what is it with the extreme doomsday sentiment of many of the Gonzaga fans this year. Sure, the Pacific game was insane, and the Zags hurt themselves way too many times throughout that game, yet they did figure it out and win, and this is not the first time we have seen crazy results from the game at Pacific. Pacific has a way of producing weird results at home. Also, Gonzaga is not the only WCC team to struggle on Saturday. Yet, look, Doomsday fans have always existed. They're not new. They're not new to Gonzaga. They're certainly not new to sports. Uh, They just have more ammunition this year, and justifiably so. It has not been a season on par with Gonzaga's last half decade, pretty much full decade outside of that 15-16 season and 14-15, which wasn't a particular, excuse me, 13-14, which wasn't a particularly good year either. But part of that is the fact that Gonzaga has been exceptionally good for eight of the last 10 years. And so having a down year feels a lot worse. It feels more dramatic. It feels more intense. And I understand that. I feel that too. Uh, But I do think that's part of why I try to put things into perspective as much as possible of like, this is you know, it's not like this is the worst Gonzaga team in 25 years or anything like that. It's just they're having an off year and they haven't had very many off years in a decade, which is why they are one of the perennial, you know, constantly ranked in the top 25, why they had one of the longest streaks uh, in the entire college basketball history, like why Mark Fuse a future Hall of Famer, like all of that. Uh, in regards to the Pacific thing, yeah, interesting fact here that was uh, originally posted by Stephen Carr, the former host of Locked On Zags, also retweeted by Theo Lawson. Uh, Gonzaga's team that went to the Elite Eight last year, their 2021 National Championship team, and their 2017 National Championship team, all those teams were not beating Pacific at halftime when they played in Stockton. Does that mean this year's Gonzaga team is going to go to the Elite Eight? Not necessarily. That's not really the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is that it's not like it has never happened that Gonzaga has been down to Pacific. Now, this particular Pacific team is not good. And I think that's part of the frustration is we know they're not good. We, we have Ken Palm data indicating they're legitimately one of the worst Division I teams in college basketball. We saw St. Mary's beat them by nearly 50 points a few days earlier, and I think that's contributing to a lot of people's panic with the St. Mary's game coming up. I think using transitive margin of victory is ridiculous. It doesn't mean much. The fact that St. Mary's beat Pacific by 36 more points than Gonzaga beat Pacific doesn't mean much to me. The context of those games was different, like we kind of already talked about. So I'm not overly concerned about that. I'm not thrilled that Gonzaga looked much worse against Pacific than St. Mary's did. It's not a great sign for this upcoming game against Saturday. I'm not saying it's entirely dismissive, but... I think that that is all what's contributing to some of the panic that we're seeing. There's also new rules, NIL rules, transfer portal rules, a weird offseason. A lot of things are contributing to people's kind of more doomsday-ish look. Like they're like, this this is going to continue to be a pattern. They kind of look down the line and think, oh, no, like 
we're not going to be able to land high profile transfers anymore. We're not going to be able to recruit anymore. Uh, the NIL era is going to kill this program. And that's like very extreme doomsday talk. Trust me, it's happening. I'm seeing it literally every single day in our Discord channel on social media, which tends to perpetuate uh negative talk. The more negative your post is, the more likely it's going to get reaction, the more likely more people are going to see it. That's how social media has worked for literally the entirety of social media. So that's not exclusive to Gonzaga basketball or, or any sports fandom or anything, period. It's just how those sports or how those social media uh, companies work. But I do think that ultimately Gonzaga playing a, a sloppy game against Pacific, being down at halftime, winning by 12 is not actually that shocking of a thing it just looks worse when compared to everything else that has happened around them this season uh, and around that pacific program as well final question here the first segment comes from gu big rig on discord who says prior to the san francisco game gonzaga had games against purdue washington san diego state and santa clara where they led by eight or more only to crumble and lose so even though Gonzaga made it hard on themselves in the last minute by missing 8 of 11 free throws at one point, could the fact that Gonzaga did hold on to win against a good opponent in San Francisco a sign that a sign of growth that they are overcoming the demons that plagued them earlier this year? Eh, kind of, but honestly, no, like, not really. Uh, the best spin I think I can put on the end of the San Francisco game in particular is that they had built themselves a big enough lead coming into the final two minutes that they were able to withstand and win. That's about it. That's about it because there was no part of their late game execution in that game that was good. There really wasn't. Graham E.K. made some free throws. Ben Gregg made free throws. Ben Gregg was good. Ben Gregg was good. That's it. I mean, their, their late game execution was horrendous in that game. It was really bad. Missing all the free throws, uh, not playing any defense. I mean, San Francisco scored at will. I get they were trying not to foul because the last thing you want to do in a close game is stop the clock. But San Francisco got whatever shots they wanted. They got to the rim with ease. They scored easily. Gonzaga had to call timeouts because they couldn't inbound the ball. They were forced to inbound the ball to players like Anton Watson, who they did not want to get to ball, the ball to. Their star point guard who shoots 85% from the line went one of four. Uh, they had one situation where Nemhard just dribbled directly into the corner and picked up the basketball, and it was not a turnover because San Francisco pushed him out. That was a huge, huge good luck for Gonzaga that that happened. Their, their late game execution in this game was not good. And I don't think that – I'm glad they won the game. And, they, and I think these kind of things may continue to help them have more resolve going forward. They had more resolve in the Pacific game, and they ended up winning that game uh, with without having to need as much desperation late game stuff. But they did get to the free throw line in that game and, and take care of business. But I, I didn't feel like Gonzaga's late game, they haven't improved in that area. In fact, I think they've regressed. And if they don't figure out how to take care of late game execution, how to get some guys some more rest during games so they're not as fatigued at the end of the game, like that, that's still a huge area of concern for this team. Well, Gonzaga's floater game was excellent last year. We're going to talk about that being a potential solution to some of this team's offensive woes. We got that and more all coming up after a word from today's sponsor, eBay Motors. Passion, drive, patience. That's what brings home the winning trophy, and it's also what helps keep your ride or die alive eBay Motors has everything that you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more, whether you are into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. And with over 122 million parts for your ride or die, you will always find exactly what you're looking for. Plus, with eBay's guaranteed fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your car every time or you get your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that W. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply, and eBay's guaranteed fit is only available to U.S. customers. March Madness is right around the corner. If you want to win your office pool, you need to stay caught up with all the college basketball action with the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. Every Monday, Andy Patton and Isaac Shade recap the biggest stories in college basketball, keep you up to date on the NCAA tournament bubble, and get you ready for the upcoming week of games. From the Big East to the Mountain West and everywhere in between, Andy and Isaac have college hoops covered on the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. Available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. All right, segment two, still Andy Patton, still Locked On Zags podcast, still going through Mailbag Monday here, coming off that Gonzaga win over Pacific that didn't feel particularly fun, but hey, at least they got the W. This question here comes from Robbie Rob on Discord, who says, in last year's game against Alabama, the team was almost unstoppable driving the lane and pulling up for floaters. I remember Coach Few saying the team should be about able to hit about 80% of those shots. In the Pacific game, no one scored on two floaters in the lane since this team is not shooting well from three. And since opposing bigs are so preoccupied with doubling EK and packing the paint, could the floater, floater game and the mid-range game be a key to improving the offense? I think this is a really intriguing question and idea. I think there are a couple ways that it may not work. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to be a huge X's and O's experts the way that some other folks are, though certainly the way that the coaching staff obviously is, and, and not being able to see these guys in practice and knowing all the skills that they have. But I will say this. A lot of Gonzaga's execution with floaters last year came from Julian Strother, who is six foot seven, and Nolan Hickman and Ryan Nemhard are both six foot under six foot two. I think they list Hickman at six two, and I feel like that's generous. Nemhard doesn't look like he's over six foot. He's maybe about six foot. So floaters over big men are much easier when you are closer to their size, the way that Julian Strother is. I also think that this team, does, they, they can't space the floor. And that's ultimately the issue. It's the issue with all aspects of Gonzaga's, not, not quite all of them, but pretty close to all aspects of Gonzaga offense is that they the opposing teams can pack the paint, like you said in the question, and they can keep defenders in and they don't have to be out as far on the perimeter because Gonzaga's wing players aren't shooters and Ben Gregg has helped because he is a decent shooter, but he's not a great, he doesn't move super well without the basketball. He does fine within the offense, but he's not out in the corner very often and pulling defenders away. So I just don't think that they have the personnel to really create space in the middle of the floor to let those floaters go. And Nick Hickman and Nemhard are not just able to just drive past their defenders and get into the lane and put up those floaters. We haven't seen them do a whole lot of that. And when, when they get screen set for them, defenders are very intentionally going under the screen. And we can the amount of times per game we see Ryan Nemhard get a screen, start to go to the basket off the screen, and the defender has come under the screen and is right in front of him, but he is open to shoot. The, 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 the offense is designed for him to take that shot. That is how those pick and rolls work. Defenders go under the screen. You make them pay by shooting the shot. He's not able to make them pay consistently. And so that's part of the problem. A floater is not really a, an answer in that, in that specific set. So I do think there are potential ways to get some more mid-range looks. We saw Nembhard hit a couple mid-range shots in that game. We've seen him take a few more of those like 15, 17-foot elbow jumpers. Uh, I think when the defense gives him that shot, he should be taking it. 
Uh, Nolan Hickman, the floaters that he took were good. They were kind of like late play clock uh, breakdown plays where he just drove to the basket and threw up a floater. And honestly, I'm fine with that. He's got, he seems to have that in his bag, but I think the reason Gonzaga isn't trying to implement it more is that I don't think that the players a are as good at making them as somebody like Strother was. They don't have the size to get them up more consistently over bigger defenders. uh, And the defense is still just really packed in, which makes that space that they have to take those floaters, just not really there. I would love to see them find ways to incorporate it more. I don't disagree with the premise when you consider the three-point shooting and the double teaming and everything. I'm just not sure logistically that there's an easy solution to incorporating it more. Next question here comes from Nope, Not Me, too, on Discord, who says, South Carolina was able to beat Kentucky by slowing them down and being physical with them on defense. They also made 11 threes, which did not hurt either. Do you think our best option to defeat Kentucky is to play a fast, high-possession game or to slow it down and rely more on our defense? So this is a tough question because, realistically, Kentucky uh, – Race a race between Kentucky and Gonzaga, full 40 minutes, high possession, back and forth, getting out in, in transition. Uh, that's advantage Kentucky by a considerable amount. They are littered with athletes. They have more depth than Gonzaga. They would outrun us in that kind of set pretty handily. That is one of their biggest strengths and is not one of Gonzaga's strengths this year because they don't have the depth to really run and gun in that kind of style. But Gonzaga is not going to just try to run a completely different style than what they're comfortable doing in this kind of situation. I think for Gonzaga, it is going to be better to be a little slower than typical. We've seen this Gonzaga team struggle to get out and transition really the last couple of years. In a lot of ways, teams have been good at getting back and preventing them from getting easy buckets in transition. I think Kentucky is going to be good at that. So I don't think Gonzaga is going to get a lot of opportunities to run, which I think forces them to play most of this game out of the half court. Gonzaga dominated Kentucky last year out of the half court. That was a big part of that win for Gonzaga. I think that's what they're going to do again. Lots of Graham E.K., lots of Anton Watson. I think a key for Gonzaga in this game, Kentucky is great offensively. They're great offensively, but they're not good defensively. They're not. They haven't been a good defensive team all year long. They've had some a few games. They held Arkansas to 57 points on Saturday, but they only scored 62. They had a really sloppy offensive game. Arkansas is also incredibly bad this year. They had a player walk away from the team like an hour before the game. It's a complete mess in Fayetteville for Eric Musselman's team, but this is not a good defensive Kentucky team. So I think for Gonzaga trying to score on the block, uh, challenging their bigs, Aaron Bradshaw has has seen his playing time plummet in recent weeks. He's supposed to be a good shot blocker, but he gets in foul trouble. He's had a lot of four foul games where he only played six minutes. Zvonimir Avisic is, is only playing, going to be playing like his fifth or sixth college game by the time Gonzaga is in town. He's a good shot blocker, but he's still pretty raw. Uh, he's very, very talented. Don't get me wrong. He, he's going to be a problem for Gonzaga, but I think there are ways they can exploit some of those matchups in the half court. But the big key for Gonzaga is how they play defensively. Because Kentucky has one of the five best offenses in the country. Their backup guards are elite. Reed Shepard and Rob Dillingham are so, so good. They're both going to be top, probably lottery picks. And they're both coming off the bench for Kentucky. It is a ridiculous group of guards that this Wildcats team has. I think the big storyline in that game is going to be how Gonzaga's defense, which is not getting enough credit this year in light of a bad season, how their defense is able to do against Kentucky's offense. Because if Gonzaga can win on that end of the floor, they actually have a chance in this game. I know people are going to think I'm a lunatic for saying that, but I've watched a lot of Kentucky this year. I cover them for Sports Illustrated. For those of you who don't know, like I watch this team extremely regularly. When they're on, nobody beats them. 
when they're on, they beat Gonzaga. Even if Gonzaga plays a good team or a good game, they beat them probably pretty handily. But this team's not always on. They're not always on. And they have played some really sloppy games lately. And there is an avenue where Gonzaga executes. Kentucky does not execute. And Gonzaga walks away with a W. I don't think it's a, a super big avenue. A lot of things are going to have to fall their way. But I do think it starts with them playing hard on the defensive end of the floor and slowing the pace down a little bit. Final question here in the second segment comes from Larry via Gmail. Larry says, is this Fuse's toughest challenge of his stint at Gonzaga compared to his other stints, which were not at Gonzaga? There's not any other stints for him. Um, I think there's an argument that it is. I think there's an argument that it is because you're talking about, I mean, toughest stint is obviously a very vague uh, language to use here. But I think the way I would define that is being dealt hands that make it difficult to have your team reach the level of the preseason expectations. And if that's what we're looking at in terms of toughest, then this, this team has a really strong case. The offseason did not go particularly well for Gonzaga. They landed Ryan Nemhard, they landed Graham E.K., they landed Steel Venters. All that happened early in the offseason. They also had more players transfer out than they were expecting. They had a lot of late players transfer out or, or not choose to come to the program, like Alex Tui, the Marcus Adams situation, Caden Perry's medical redshirt, and, and ultimately having to retire, uh, unable to add players late in the offseason like they wanted to, in part because the transfer portal was pretty dried up by that point. Perhaps there was some other issues with NIL and other things we don't really know uh, when they were actively pursuing players in the portal. They landed Nemhard and Ike, who were considered two of the best uh, at the positions they needed. Steel Venters was considered a, a, a quality addition as well. Uh, so they were dealt tough hands with having to find some more players late in the process. Ultimately, of course, went with Krinovich and, and Pavle Stosic, who weren't expected to be big contributors in day one. Of course, they had the dust, or excuse me, the Steel Venters injury, which was just devastating. So a lot of factors that put this team in a position to not be as successful from day one while they still had these really high expectations as a top 10, top 15, top 20 team coming off an elite eight appearance last year. Like, and I'm not saying that like Mark Few is blameless for those things. In some cases, there are ways he maybe should have, could have, would have handled things a little bit differently. But ultimately he came into the season without the, the roster construction that he wanted with really high expectations. And they haven't been met. I mean, clearly they have not been met. This team's outside the top 25 for the first time in, in eight years. They're fighting really hard to still be, to not end this tremendous NCAA tournament streak. And, and they're in a position where that is tough. It's tougher than it's been in a really, really long time. And they, this is not the worst roster Mark Few has had, not by a long shot. Many of the rosters early in his tenure were not as good as this roster from a talent perspective. There's an argument that this is one of the least deep rosters he's ever had, again, with some injuries contributing to that. But uh, many of the, the rosters in you know the early 2000s or the late 2000s even, uh, the post-Adam Morrison era, the uh, pre-Adam Morrison era in some ways, the, the rosters were probably not as good as this roster, but the expectations were much lower. The expectations were basically just make the NCAA tournament. They weren't ranked in the preseason. They didn't have, you know, elite eight aspirations. They didn't have a sweet 16 streak. So I think there's a strong argument that, yeah, this is the toughest challenge for Mark Few, and, and it's not over. I think 2015-16 was a similar challenge. They were coming off an elite eight appearance in the 14-15 season, uh, and they lost a bunch of games in the WCC and were in legitimate danger of not making the big dance. They then won the WCC tournament and went to the Sweet 16, and the next year they went to the national championship game. So Mark Few has met 
has has risen to the challenge and his program has risen to the challenge when they have had challenges in the past. I think that 15-16 remains the best comparison to this year. And not only the best comparison, but really at this point, probably the best case scenario is that Gonzaga does that. They win the WCC tournament. They go into the NCAA tournament as a lower seed than they've been in a really long time. And then they win a couple games. And then the next year they reload with some transfers. They bring in some high-level play- players and they go on a big run. Like that's the best case scenario. It's absolutely possible. But I do think that there's a very strong argument that this year, along with 15, 16, uh, are some of the biggest challenges that Mark Few has faced in his career. Well, folks, we are going to compare the Big East and the Mountain West as potential options uh, for conference realignment for Gonzaga. We also got a question about Drew Timmy and the women's team all coming up right after a word from today's sponsor, FanDuel. The NFL playoffs are rolling along, folks. The Super Bowl is just around the corner, and now is the perfect time to get in on the action with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Because, folks, right now, new customers can get $150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. It's $150 in bonus bets, win or lose. The FanDuel app is super easy to use, and there are so many different ways to bet, like live same-game parlays. You can find bets in the new Explore tab, or you can make a parlay in the Parlay Hub, the best way to find popular parlays. Right now, the Gonzaga women, folks, 24,000 to 1 odds to win the championship. $5 bet, you take home 1200 bucks. Lisa Fortier's team has not even played a close game in the WCC. If you're thinking that that might be some pretty good odds, visit FanDuel.com slash LockedOn and make your first bet a layup. FanDuel, an official partner of the NFL. All right, folks, final segment here. We got some more mailbag questions to get through. This one comes from Jeff via Gmail. Jeff says, with respect to conference realignment, after two years, if the Big 12 has still not invited Gonzaga, could the Mountain West prove to be a better option than the Big East, especially since the logistical issues, travel times, travel costs would be less than half what they would be in the Big East, or would the history and prestige of the Big East still rule the day over the Mountain West? Yeah, look, I can't. I don't know all of the logistics financially, so I can't say what's a better option for Gonzaga without having those figures or, or, you know, that generally the impact that that would make. But if we're comparing them, even if we're comparing a a Mountain West Pac-2 merger where it's the Mountain West with Oregon State and Washington State, the Big East is the better option. And and this question had some more details in it that I omitted just for, for time sake here. But, uh, you know, right now the, the Mountain West has more top 30 net teams in the Big East, like as a snapshot in time right now. But that that the consistency of the Big East is much better. UConn, Xavier, Mar- UConn, Marquette, Creighton in particular have been excellent the last couple of years. Uh, St. John's is, is on a, a big rise right now. Providence, Villanova is down a bit right now, but I don't think that's going to last too long. Uh, Providence, Xavier are, are great programs, I think are going to bounce back from you know, the questionable years this year. Providence, obviously, with the new head coach. Georgetown, I think they've, they have not found their footing yet after the Patrick Ewing era, but Ed Cooley is a phenomenal coach, and I think Georgetown's going to be back in business. DePaul's going to hire a new coach. That's probably not going to, like, elevate them to the top of the conference necessarily, but they're going to be better than the absolute atrocity that has been DePaul basketball for the last couple of years. Butler is a consistent program. Like the depth, the depth in the Big East is much, much better. And this is the best Mountain West we've seen in a long time. This Mountain West is really good, folks. They're really good. San Diego State, New Mexico, Nevada, Colorado State are all consistently right in that top 25 conversation. Phenomenal stuff from them. Boise State has been fantastic as well. Like this is a good good Mountain West Conference. 
But at the end of the day, if you're talking about where Gonzaga should go for a long-term option, you, it's got to be the Big East. Again, without all of the details of the finances and the various other things, obviously it would be cheaper for the school to stay in the Mountain West. But guess what? The Big East is going to pay them more. There's going to be more exposure. There's going to be more TV games. Uh, the Mountain West right now, and this would change if the Mountain West Pac-12 merger probably happened. But like, if, you, if any of you have tried to watch Mountain West basketball this year, it is a nightmare. Their games are on the Mountain West Network. It is difficult to find uh, so many high-profile games. Colorado State at New Mexico, San Diego State at Utah State. I didn't mention them earlier. They're also fantastic. Like Those games between two top 25 caliber teams are not on TV. Like You can't watch them. You go to the Big East, they're on FS1 all the dang time, and, and the Big East is going to negotiate a new contract here, and that's where I think Gonzaga could get involved with those negotiations potentially. But the Big East is going to be – they're either going to stay with FS1, they're going to be on ESPN, like they're going to be on national TV all the dang time. It is a much better situation for Gonzaga from a basketball perspective to be in the Big East. Like I don't think it's close. But, of course, the other factors do matter, and they will ultimately have a big role in determining if Gonzaga has the options between these two, what they choose to do. But from a basketball perspective, the Mountain West having a good year this year is not moving the needle for me in terms of which conference I'd rather the Zags be in long term. Next question here comes from Jim on Facebook, who says, is Drew Timmy a top 20 all-time college basketball player? No, no, he's not. I, I think he's he's going to be top 20 of this decade, unquestionably, when the decade is over. Uh, he's certainly top two or three all time for Gonzaga. Uh, his notoriety, his, you know, his familiarity, his face, his recognition is is all time for this entire generation, like like in the top 20, unquestionably top 10, maybe top five, just in terms of like how well known he was in the college basketball space during his tenure at Gonzaga. But ultimately, he did not win any National Player of the Year awards, and he did not win any national championships. And there are 20 players who have both of those, or at least you know multiples of one of those, who are going to be higher in that conversation than Drew Timmy. But he's a three-time All-American. He's an all-tournament performer. He's an all-region guy in the, in the tournament, conference player of the year twice, leading all-time scorer for a very historic, very well-known college basketball program. He made a national championship appearance. He went to two Elite Eights in his three NCAA tournaments, and all three of them resulted in the Sweet 16. He's <laughs> exceptional, exceptional college basketball player. That combined with his notoriety, his fame, it puts him in this upper echelon of college basketball greats, particularly for his era, for his kind of time period that he was a college basketball player. But he's not a top 20 player of all time without those national player of the year accolades and without a national championship ring to go alongside it. Final question here comes from GU Big Rig on Discord, who says, what do you make of LMU's announcement that at the end of the school year, they will be discontinuing six of the 22 sports they currently sponsor? It is crazy to think about how 40 years ago Gonzaga was in a similar situation, how differently things could have ended up. Yeah, it was really sad. It was really sad to see this happening at Gonzaga, I, or excuse me, at LMU. I'm, I can't say I'm super familiar with the inner workings at LSU or LMU, excuse me. I worked in college athletics. I worked at Seattle U for three years. I worked at the University of Portland for two years. So I have a, an understanding of how uh, ac athletic departments work at smaller WCC or in Seattle U's case, WAC schools. So I, I do have some understanding. Uh, and I think the main reasons that LMU gave that, you know, you kind of got to read between the lines in, in those kind of statements were that they don't feel they have the support staff to adequately provide the resources they want to all of their student athletes. And I think that that's probably fair, that they probably don't have enough athletic trainers. They probably don't have enough strength staff. They probably don't have enough academic support specialists, compliance specialists, the various roles in athletic departments that work with the student athletes. 
um, the internal staff, it's hard to have enough. UP never had enough. I, Seattle, you never had enough. I mean, it's hard. The amount of people you'd have to employ to, to feel comfortable with how much, like I, when I worked in academic support, I worked with seven different teams, like providing adequate academic support to seven different college programs is, is hard. I mean, that's a lot of work uh, that's being stretched a little too thin. So one of my best friends is an athletic trainer and I have other friends who've worked in that field or in strength. And it, yeah, you can't have too many student athletes or you just can't adequately do your job. And so I think LMU had to make a tough decision of we don't, we can't for whatever reason afford to pay more. It's still tough to see. And hopefully it doesn't become a trend uh, around the country where other programs are doing this. Uh, LMU was offering more programs in the other school in the WCC. So I think that they're they're kind of on par with a lot of the other conference schools and programs right now. But obviously any situation where a bunch of student athletes find out very suddenly that they can no longer uh, continue at that school if they want to keep playing their sport is is a pretty tragic thing. And I feel really, I feel for those student athletes and for the school at large for, for being in that situation. Final question of the show comes from Jeff via Gmail. Jeff says, in WCC play so far, the closest the Gonzaga women have been to losing is an 18-point victory. Will we see the Gonzaga women play even a close WCC game in 2024? The most difficult WCC games at Santa Clara, at Portland, and at San Francisco are all now behind them. Yeah, I can't tell the future, my friend, unfortunately. But yeah, it's it's they have not had any struggles with the teams they have played up to this point. And based on Ken Palm data, based on records, based on everything we know about the WCC, it does appear that they have played their toughest games. So going forward, the matchups that they're facing should not be as difficult as the ones that they have won by 18, 24, 25, 37 points, uh, like they've been doing throughout the season. Now, I suspect somebody's going to trip them up, not in a loss. I, I, I ultimately believe this women's team is going to go undefeated through the WCC championship and, and get themselves a very favorable seed in March. I'm not guaranteeing that by any stretch, but I think it's very, very possible for this program. But I think that we will see some closer games. Somebody will find a way to play a full four quarters against them and maybe keep it within 10, within eight. Uh, maybe they end up pulling away and still winning by 12 or so, but that would be their closest game in the in-conference play. This team has been absolutely phenomenal. The way Yvonne Ejim has played this year is, is absolutely incredible with her uh, her performance on the block, her rebounding, her efficiency, uh, the high-level distribution of the Trunk Twins and their ability to also shoot from beyond uh, the arc. Brenna Maxwell has been fantastic. Eliza Hollinsworth having the best season of her career. Like It has been an absolute joy to watch this team and how they have destroyed the rest of the WCC, and it'll be interesting to see if they can carry that momentum uh, into an undefeated regular season and into potentially some serious success in the NCAA tournament as well. That's going to wrap it up for us today here on the Locked On Zags podcast. I want to thank all of you for making the show your first listen or your first watch of the day. So give a special shout out to those everyday listeners and those of you who have joined us in the Discord channel. We'll be back on Tuesday with a preview of Gonzaga's 8 p.m. game against Dominic Harris and the LMU Lions on Tuesday night. So we'll be previewing that game. Then on Wednesday, we'll recap the game, and then we'll start getting you ready for the big one this Saturday against the Gales of St. Mary's, all coming up this week on Locked On Zags. Thank you so much. And until then, as always, go Zags.